Tonight's reading is in 2 Timothy, chapter 3, verses 1 to 9, and that can be found on page 1196 in the Church Bibles. That's 2 Timothy, chapter 3, starting at verse 1. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambre opposed Moses, so also these teachers oppose the truth. They are men of depraved minds who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. But they will not get very far because, as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Nicola. It'll be really helpful for you if you keep um, 2 Timothy open on page 1196. And if this is your first time, and then just to um, let you know, this term we've been making our way through 2 Timothy, this letter... Um, written by the Apostle Paul, um, and these are the verses that we've got to um, this evening. Um, I'm going to read the first verse of the letter, um, and then lead us in prayer. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, in keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. Thank you that Christ Jesus has appeared and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. We praise you so much for the privilege of being united to him. We praise you so much for the privilege of having your spirit dwelling in us. And we pray, Father, that he would work powerfully through your words to encourage and challenge and warn us, we pray. Give us soft and humble hearts, we plead with you, our Father, that we may be built up as a church that is faithful to the gospel. For your glory we ask. Amen. Seems that hardly a day goes past at the moment without us being warned of a crisis. Environmental crisis, energy crisis, economic crisis. In chapter 3 this evening, Paul wants to make Timothy, he wants to, by extension, make church leaders and their congregations aware of another crisis. Verse 1, 
But mark this. Paul says, listen up, pay attention, be aware, understand this, there will be terrible times in the last days. Now when we read that phrase, the last days, don't think about um, the sandwich boards with the words, the end of the word is nigh. Now this phrase in the New Testament is frequently used to describe the entire period between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus. So Hebrews chapter 1 The writer says, in these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, Peter, as he preaches, refers back to a promise that God made through the prophet Joel, that in the last days, he would pour out his Spirit. The last days, it's the period between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus. It's the time period Timothy found himself in back in Ephesus. And it's the time period we find ourselves in. And Paul warns us, terrible times. Days of difficulty, not necessarily in every single place all of the time, but they will exist. And the reason why is because of people. Let's look down again. Verse 2, people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, Disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. It's not exactly a glowing report, is it? But we might be thinking, but why do we need to be told this? We'd be forgiven for thinking, well, duh, look out into the world, and it's obvious, isn't it? Turn on the TV, look at the papers... And this is what we see. And yet the shock is, Paul isn't speaking about the world. He's not speaking about the irreligious, but the religious. He's not talking about people outside the full walls of the church, but people within the church. Verse 5. He's talking about a people who have a form of godliness, but deny its power. In the early 1920s, the Eiffel Tower was um, in decline. Um, And so letters were sent out from the city of Paris to a number of scrap dealers, sort of in the local region, inviting them to a meeting. Um, At this meeting, Victor Lustig, the one who sent out the letters, he gathered these businessmen and he said, well, the highest bidder gets the Eiffel Tower and you can have the whole thing and you can do with it what you want. And two days later, Victor met with André Poisson, um, one of these businessmen, um, and a deal worth reportedly 1.2 million francs was made between them. The only problem for André Poisson was that Victor Lustig didn't work for the city of Paris. He was a crook, he was a charlatan, he was a complete phony, a fraudster. However, by the time André had realised his mistake, Lustig had already fled to Austria with a suitcase full of cash. And he even returned to Paris a month later to try the trick again. It worked again. The shock and indeed seriousness of our verses this evening 
is that that is exactly the kind of person that Paul wants to draw our attention to. It's the kind of person that Paul wants to warn us about. Paul wants us to be very clear. There are people in churches, people who look religious, and the reality is they're crooks, they're charlatans, they're phonies, they're fraudsters. Two headings for us tonight. And the first is this, the reality of religious fraudsters. And the point is, mark this, be aware of this, understand this, the reality of religious fraudsters, understand this. And what Paul does in these verses is give us a load of information about these religious fraudsters. He speaks of their character, their methods, their true colors, and their folly, their character. Now, of course, there are a number of things listed in 2 to 4, um, a number of traits that we could analyze in, in lots of detail. But it seems to me that the main thing Paul wants to draw our attention to, at the heart of the issue, is their love. Or, or indeed, their misplaced love. You, you probably noticed, as the verses were read for us earlier on, that that is the thing that gets repeated throughout. Did you notice? It's there at the start in verse 2. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money. It's there in the middle, in verse 3, they are without love and not lovers of the good. And it's there at the end too. They are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. That's the emphasis that Paul has. The people whom Paul's talking about, they love the wrong things. They have misplaced love. And therefore, it's no surprise that they are boastful, proud, unforgiving, etc. Now, of course, these people that Paul is talking about, um, of course, these religious fraudsters have a form of godliness. Externally, you might think they look like Christians. They might be at church. They might put money in the plates. They might say the words of the Nicene Creed. They might even be ordained and wear the uniforms. These people might do lots of outwardly religious things and yet that's all it is outward religion outward appearance all shadow and no substance it's all a sham form of godliness but deny its power now what does that mean what does it mean to deny its power well just flick back with me if you will to the very start of 2 timothy so i want to draw our attention back to verse 6 Uh, of chapter 1. I think this might help with the question, what does it mean to deny its power? Well, let me read from chapter 1, verse 6. For this reason, I, Paul, remind you, Timothy, to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Now, if you think back to the the first week of the series in 2 Timothy, then you'll remember that we said it's decision time for Timothy. By the time he wrote this letter, Paul was in prison And so if you were alive at the time, it was very shameful to be associated with Paul. 
Very shameful indeed. And so it's no surprise as we've gone through this letter that we've found a number of people who have deserted Paul and the gospel. Decision time. And the question for Timothy is, what will he do? Will he do the same? Will he remain faithful to the gospel even if it leads to suffering? Or will he not remain faithful in order to avoid it? Will he persevere in teaching the word of God even if it leads to persecution? Or will he compromise for the sake of comfort? Now, Paul's aim in this letter is very clear. It's there in 1 verse 8. Paul's aim is clear. Do not be ashamed of the message or of Paul. Rather, join him in suffering for the gospel. And you do that by the power of God's. Now, why have we gone back here? Well, it seems to me that in 2 Timothy, the power of God is shown as the church leader is willing to suffer for the gospel. 2 Timothy seems to be all about suffering. It's come up every week, I'm sure of it. In 2 Timothy, the power of God is shown, is revealed, is made clear, is evident as the church leader is willing to suffer for the gospel. Back forward to chapter 3. These fraudsters, they do lots of religious things, they have a form of godliness, but because they love themselves, they are not willing to suffer. Because they are lovers of money, they are not willing to suffer. Because they are lovers of pleasure, they are not willing to suffer for the gospel. That's why they deny its power. They have an external sort of religion, an external Christianity, but they are unwilling to suffer. That's why they deny its power. That's their character. And Paul says, you see, we we really do need to be aware of these people because these people aren't the kind of people who keep their beliefs to themselves. No, they like to share them. Not only do they profess false religion, they like to promote their false religion. They proclaim it. And their methods are very sneaky and subtle indeed. Verse 6, they are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women, who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning, but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. I want to be clear, Paul is not saying that all women are gullible. He seems to be talking about a particular group of women in Ephesus who are vulnerable. And maybe these women are at home whilst their husbands are out at work. These women who have sinful past, these women who are struggling with all sorts of desires now, these women who are very eager to learn. And so, of course, when the knock comes at the door and and two smiley, friendly-looking people are outside asking if they want to know what the Bible says, well, it sounds intriguing to these women. They're eager to learn. And yet, they never hear the truth of the gospel. They hear about all sorts of ideas and theories and philosophies and ideologies. But they never come to a knowledge of the truth. These women who are in desperate need of hearing the glorious truth that Jesus came down to die, to deal with sin. That's what they need to hear. And yet, it's not what they're hearing. 
And so you see, these religious fraudsters that Paul is speaking of, they're sneaky in their methods. They target the vulnerable. They are subtle. They never come to a knowledge of the truth, these women, because they never hear the truth of the gospel. And the reason why they never hear the truth of the gospel is because the religious fraudsters that Paul is speaking about are those who oppose the truth, their character, their methods, their true colors. Verse 8, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these teachers oppose the truth. They are men of depraved minds who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. In Hebrew tradition, Janus and Jambres are two of the Egyptian magicians at the time when Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh. So back in Exodus, God's people are in Egypt. God says that he's going to rescue them. And he sends Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh to perform some signs. You know how it goes. Aaron throws his staff down on the floor. It becomes a snake. But the Egyptian magicians do the same. The next day, Moses and Aaron, they pop off to the river Nile. And all of the water has changed into blood. But again, the Egyptian magicians can do the same thing. A week later, it's frogs. But again, for a third time, the Egyptian magicians did the same thing. And the point that Paul is wanting to make is just as these magicians opposed Moses, well, the religious fraudsters that he's speaking about opposed the truth of the gospel. And I think this is really important for us to grasp because it reveals to us, doesn't it, that the people Paul has in mind are not genuine Christians who have got something slightly wrong. He's not talking about genuine Christians who have sinned in some way or messed up in some way. He's talking about people who might call themselves a Christian and indeed at times may act like a Christian when in reality they are not Christians. He's talking about people who, if they were around at the time of Exodus, they would be on Pharaoh's side, wanting to enslave people rather than on Moses' side, wanting to set them free. That's what these religious forces are doing with these women. Rather than them giving them the, the liberating news of the gospel, which sets people free, they're enslaving them even more. They are not Christians. They are not... It's not that these people... What did I say? They are not Christians. That's right, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> Got confused then with my negatives. These people are not genuine Christians who have slightly messed up. They are not Christians. That is why they are rejected. Rejected, I take it, by God. Rejected on the final day at the judgment. And verse 9, they will not get very far because as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. Their character, their methods, their true colors, their folly. In 2019, a, a man named Anthony McGraw was jailed after staging a burglary at his, his own house. 
uh, and committing fraud on all of the items that were stolen. For a while, it looked like as if he was going to get away with it. This was until after the burglary had taken place. He popped into the police station and he said, I've got some photographs of the things that were stolen. Um, Just so you've got more up-to-date photographs. The police could look at those photographs. They could look at the properties and see that they had been taken after the burglary had been taken place. If that wasn't enough, these photos also included where these photographs had been taken place. His folly was made completely clear as then the police raided this house and found the items. Folly made clear. Well, just as in the case of him, just as in the case of Janus and Jambres, who eventually couldn't keep up with Pharaoh, in fact, the fourth plague, the third plague, they couldn't keep up. They had to confess, it's the finger of God, we can't do anything. Well, as in their case, these religious fraudsters, their folly will become clear. It doesn't say when, does it? It might be in this lifetime, as we so obviously see these people teach things that are completely and obviously wrong. It might become clear when suffering comes for the gospel, and these people, remember, are not going to suffer for the gospel. Their folly may come clear when the Lord Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead. Can't pull the wall over his eyes. Their folly will be made clear, and look at Paul's confidence that Paul has. Confidence that Paul has in that. Their character, their methods, their true colors, their folly. The reality of religious fraudsters. Understand this. Now we've been saying throughout this series that we need to remember that the primary audience of this letter are the Timothy's kind of people, the church leaders. And yet this letter is one for the church too. Do you remember how the letter ends? The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you all. The church. And so the question that we all need to think through is this, are we aware? Are we being on guard? Remember, this is the time period that we are in. We are in the last days. Are we aware that these kind of people exist? Not everything that we hear, even if it's dressed up in religious clothes, will be the truth. There will be religious fraudsters And just like they could sneak into people's houses in Ephesus, well, they can so easily do the same via the YouTube channels that we subscribe to, the books that we read, the podcasts we listen to, the songs that we sing along to. Are we being careful? Are we aware? Are we weighing what we're listening to against the truth of Scripture? Or do we simply take everything that we listen to as gospel? And are we protecting those who are potentially more vulnerable than us? Are we looking after younger Christians? Making sure that they're not going to be taken in by everything that they hear. We're good, aren't we, at at warning children. Be careful of the scam on the phone. Be careful of the bank fraud, the internet fraud. We're good at that. We're we're good at telling them the signs to look out for. Are we good at equipping people 
against religious frauds. Do you know what your children are learning in RE lessons at school? What they're being taught in assemblies? Now, this isn't to say that everything is bad. And yet we clearly need to be careful, don't we? Paul says, but mark this, pay attention, listen up. Take off the rose-tinted spectacles. Wake up and smell the coffee. And also, let's not be naive about the potential for religious fraudsters here. I take it, therefore, that these verses give us some great things to be praying for ourselves. And some things that we can be praying for one another. Pray that we wouldn't be lovers of ourselves, but lovers of God's. Pray constantly that we wouldn't be lovers of money, but lovers of God. Pray that we wouldn't be lovers of pleasure, but lovers of God. If it starts with the heart, let's pray hearts for our hearts. That our love for God would increase and increase and increase. The reality of religious fraudsters understand this. And our second, much briefer point. The response to religious fraudsters avoid them. The response to religious fraudsters avoid them. Two instructions in the passage you might have noticed. Verse 1, but mark this. And the second comes halfway through verse 5. Should we look at it together? Paul says to Timothy, have nothing to do with such people. Have nothing to do with such people. Now, the tricky thing about this instruction is working out exactly what it means in practice. All of the books say something slightly different. Does Paul, for example, mean that Timothy should have no contacts with these guys whatsoever? You know, if Timothy's in Waitrose and he bumps into them, should he run round to another aisle and hide amongst the can of beans or something and then then go back round to the cheese counter when they've gone? Is that what Paul's expecting? Well, as is often the case when looking at a a verse in Scripture, the the context of the section or or the chapter or the book is really helpful. And I think this is the case with chapter 3. This will become a lot clearer, hopefully, next week. But what Paul seems to be doing across the whole of chapter 3 is holding out to Timothy two patterns of ministry. Next week, we'll see that he is to continue in the pattern of Paul's ministry. And so in contrast with that, in the second half of the chapter, in contrast with that, what Paul seems to be doing in the first half is outlining a pattern of ministry to avoid. A pattern of ministry that involves lots of religion, but not the truth of the gospel. A pattern of ministry that involves lots of religion, but no suffering for the gospel. All of that is to say that I think that having nothing to do with these people means, at a minimum, for Timothy, avoiding their pattern of ministry. Not being like them. 
In practice, that's going to raise questions as to who we should partner with when it comes to ministry. I think avoiding their pattern means avoiding partnering with people who are like this. So, for example, let's say that the religious-looking non-Christian comes along to Timothy and he says, shall we run an event together where we talk about God? I think Timothy should say no, because he cannot partner with religious-looking non-Christians who want to talk about God. When the religious-looking non-Christian comes up and says, can I help at the children's group on a Friday evening? No, it wouldn't be right Now, having nothing to do with them might be stronger than that. It might be wise in some context for church leaders to have literally nothing to do with them. I was talking to a church minister recently who was at a meeting, and he thought that in that setting it was unwise for him to shake hands with a particular person. He said that he would do it if they were one-to-one and on their own. But he thought, primarily because of the people here, it would be unwise for people to think that they were in partnership. One-to-one, he would shake his human hand, he'd take his human hand, as if he has any other type of hand. And one-to-one, they would talk. They would disagree over things. But in that particular context, because of people around, he thought it would be wise not to. It might be wise in other contexts to have literally nothing to do with these people, especially potentially if we're a a younger Christian and we don't know whether what they're saying is true or false. It might be stronger than what I've said, but at a minimum, I think avoiding these people, having nothing to do with them, means avoiding their pattern and avoiding their partnership. Now again, remember, this is for church leaders, this letter primarily. And yet this point really does have application for us. Particularly in whether or not we're going to support church leaders who are making difficult decisions as to who we should partner with in ministry who we should unite with, and who we shouldn't. I want you to imagine for a moment that you're a sheep. Got it in your head? You're a sheep. We're all in a field together, eating grass. Uh, We look over the wall, and in the next field, we see what we think is another sheep. And so we, we all potter off to the shepherd at the same time, and we say, look, there's another sheep next door. Let him in. Let's work with him. That'll be really great. We could learn so much from one another. The shepherd responds, I know he looks like a sheep, but he's not. He's a wolf. And so I'm not letting him in. Well, as sheep in that situation, I'd be very surprised if we just wander off into small little groups and start complaining and grumbling. Oh, the shepherd's so boring. Won't let us partner with all kinds of people. That would be so wonderful. No. I take it that a sheep in that situation is going to be so thankful that their shepherd is willing to protect them. Church leaders who end up 
making decisions to avoid partnering with people will go through a hard time. They'll be given all sorts of labels. They're alarmist, fundamentalist, narrow, extremist, and elitist. And the question for us as a church family is how will we respond when church leaders have to say no to partnering with people? Will we gossip? Will we complain about them behind their backs? Or will we publicly support them for making a difficult decision? Will we say things like, it's such a shame that we can't work with those people? Or will we be thankful that they are willing to say no? That they are willing to make difficult decisions for our protection and safety? 2 Timothy is a great book for us as a church because it helps us to see what kind of ministry we should be doing, what kind of ministry we shouldn't be doing, and how we as a family can back and pray for and love and support church leaders. Paul says we're living in a time of crisis. Let's believe that. Mark this. Terrible times in the last days. Religious fraudsters. Don't be taken in by them. Don't partner with them. It won't be good for your eternal salvation. Let's pray together. Father, we know our hearts are often cold and unreceptive to your words. So often tempted to deny that we need these warnings. And so we pray that your spirit would help us to believe the reality of your words and to take on board these gracious and loving warnings that you give us. Please, our Father, help us to grow in our love of you and help us to be aware that not everyone who calls themselves a Christian will be teaching us the truth. Please protect us as a church. Keep us holding on to the true gospel. In Jesus' name, we ask these things. Amen. Amen. As the musicians.